The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 20. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. You find that on page 825 of your Pew Bible. We're reading the first 16 verses. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of God. (coughs) For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who, those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do ask you now that you'll be pleased to bless us with your word. We come to you with... A need which is absolute, in me a need of speech and understanding in all of us, a need of hearing and understanding. We confess without you we can do nothing. And so we beseech you, almighty God, you who are the sovereign Lord, the giver of every good and perfect gift, be with us, we pray. Open our ears, open our hearts, create in us that heart of thankfulness which responds well to your grace. For we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) Well, we saw last week in the previous uh, section of Matthew's Gospel, the last chapter, that our Lord was teaching his disciples about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, how one one must receive the kingdom 
as a child, bringing nothing to bear, nothing of your own goodness or merit. Contrary to this, we saw the narrative of the rich young man who came with all his supposed law-keeping and righteousness, but ended up being turned away from the kingdom, departing from the Lord in sorrow. Our Lord now continues this theme, but he continues the theme of not entrance into the kingdom, but in the realm of kingdom life. Just as we must think of ourselves as nothing to enter the kingdom, we must continue to think of ourselves as nothing in our service in the kingdom. Just as we must think of ourselves as nothing to enter the kingdom of heaven, so we must continue that mindset, thinking of ourselves when it, thinking of ourselves as nothing when it comes to service in the kingdom. You see, we don't serve for position. We don't serve for reward. And anything we receive from the Lord is of his grace, not of our merit. It's of his grace not according to works we have done. And so this passage before us challenges us, challenges us about our presuppositions about God and his character, about who we are, how we function, how we serve in the kingdom. It challenges us to refresh our thoughts of God, his sovereignty, his grace, and his generosity. It makes us think afresh about who God is. And there are two headings that I want to deal with this parable under this morning. The first is the circumstances of the parable, or the context really, because that will tell us the meaning of the parable. So the circumstances of the parable, and then secondly, the actual teaching of the parable. The circumstances of the parable are very important I'll say this is a challenging text to interpret. There's at least three interpretations of this text uh, floating around, all of which are somewhat related, but the context of the parable, I think, points us to the, the very heart of the narrative. As we've said, we've seen the meritless children, chapter 19, verse 13, those who bring nothing in their hand coming to the Lord, and our Lord saying, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Those who come with nothing are granted entrance. Hot on the heels of that, there's the rich young man. He comes with his law keeping. All these things I've done since I was young, he says. I've kept the law. But he leaves Christ sorrowful. He was not granted entry to the kingdom of heaven because he came with some idea of his own merit. Of, of, his, of his own worth before God. That passage, chapter 19, ends with these verses, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Our passage today ends with these words, chapter 20, verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first last. And that's not going to be the last time we hear those words in this chapter in other, words, in other words, there is a continuity of principle, the last being first and the first being last. There is some continuity of principle between these passages. Throughout 19 and 20, our Lord is divesting his disciples of any ideas of self-merit or position 
in the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to remove from them any ideas of their own merit or ideas they may have of position in his kingdom. The parable reveals to us that position and rewards in the kingdom are distributed not according to individual merit, but according to the grace of God. Rewards in the kingdom are distributed according to the grace of God. And we see that borne out in the text before us. What precedes it? The children who bring nothing are granted entry. The man who brings his self-righteousness is refused. We also see this after our text. Look at verse 17 and then verse 20. Jesus tells us that his position and his service, verse 17, in the kingdom as he serves his father are found in what? In death and in resurrection. Not by great position currently, but by sorrow and humiliation. And then in verse 20, we have one of the most bizarre conversations that is ever recorded in Scripture. The the mother of the sons of Zebedee coming to Jesus and saying, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. What a bizarre request. They want position. Their mother wants them to have position in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells them, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came to serve and not be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. You can see what our Lord's saying, can't you? He's saying service in the kingdom now is not about position. It's not about putting yourself forward, thinking you deserve more because of what you've done. In fact, he's going to say position and reward in the kingdom will, will look like you being Christ-like. How did Christ manifest this? He died and was raised again the third day. Nothing glorious about death on the cross. He's teaching them that life in the kingdom is conducted in a wholly different fashion to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of heaven is different. In the world, the first shall be first and the last shall remain last. Not so in the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who champion themselves, who shout about their own merits, or demand that they get what they deserve. That's not the way of the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of grace and generosity. And by means of this parable, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the character of God and the character of the kingdom and the character of those who are brought into the kingdom. This is about kingdom people. It's not about getting into the kingdom or being removed from the kingdom. It's about people who are in the kingdom, believers. And and the text tells us 
that Jesus is going to challenge us on a fairly fundamental level. We are so wired to the principle of merit, it's hard to believe, isn't it? We're so wired to the principle of merit, so wired to the idea that we should get what we deserve, what we work for, and we forget in the process that all that we have, all that we have, is from the grace of God, under his sovereign power. One pastor theologian, R.T. France, says, the kingdom of heaven does not operate on the basis of commercial convention. It does not operate on the basis of commercial convention. He says, God rules by grace, not by what we deserve. That's the fundamental lesson today. We need to get that into our hearts. Are we willing and able by faith this day to submit our natural instincts to the instincts and principles of our great and generous and gracious God? That's what's going on in this parable. Let's see how our Lord teaches this from the parable. Secondly, with the teaching found within the parable. The facts of the parable are pretty straightforward. Let's just note a few matters and derive some lessons. Master goes out to hire workers to work in his vineyard. Verse 2, we're told, he agrees with them a day's wage, a denarius. And then he goes out in the third, sixth, ninth and the eleventh right at the end of the day and hires more workers to work in the vineyard they work a different amount of time but he pays them all the same they work a different amount of time but he pays them all the same one denarius and the first workers come to our lord in verse 10 greatly disgruntled at this They thought they deserved more. If if the people hired at the 11th hour received a denarius, how much more should they receive? Because they worked the whole day. They were in the vineyard, they say, in the heat of the day. They put in the hours, surely. Don't they deserve more than the ones who were employed later on? And they begin to grumble at the master. And they charge their master with injustice that's really important to understand they charge him with injustice the master says to them what am i doing wrong did i not give you what we agreed at the beginning of the day a denarius for a day's work and he also says am i not free to do with my money as i see fit Can I not give those workers of the third, sixth, ninth, and the eleventh hour, can I not also give them a denarius? Am I not at liberty to do such? He asked them, do you begrudge me my generosity? And Jesus' conclusion to the narrative is this. So the last will be first, and the first last Now, we can feel the sense of injustice, I think, can't we? If this went on in our uh, place of employment, we'd probably have something to say about it. We can feel the sense of injustice. Even children here, if they were set to work by their parents and, and they saw this going on, they'd think, well, that's not fair either. So why did the master do it? And what is our Lord trying to teach us about the kingdom of heaven remember verse one 
the kingdom of heaven is like a master. This is not a parable about how to run your business. This is not about Christian economics. This is about the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord tells us very clearly. Why is our Lord teaching us this? What's he trying to communicate to those who are already in the kingdom about the kingdom, about the king, and about ourselves? I think there are at least six lessons, which we'll briefly cover this morning, six lessons that we can learn from this narrative. And they center our minds upon the character of God, the character of the kingdom, and our relationship to him and to his providential dealings with us. Perhaps this is a call to us all to realign our thinking with respect to God, the kingdom, and ourselves. Six lessons. The first is this. We quote William Hendrickson, the commentator, who says, First lesson, do not be those who are among the first, but become the last. It's fairly straightforward from the text, isn't it? Do not be those who are among the first, but become the last. That is to say there is a danger in the kingdom of receiving much and yet being counted last in the kingdom. We can't have this egalitarian view of the kingdom of heaven and heaven itself, as if we're all sat up there equally enjoying the the pleasures of eternity in heaven, all equally rewarded. Scripture doesn't speak like that. It speaks of rewards. But there's also the rewards of this life. We can't have this egalitarian view. Jesus is very clear. There are some who receive first who will be last, and some who receive last who will be first. They will have greater position within the kingdom. There's a danger and a warning that we need to take heed right now. That by our attitudes and our actions, we who were first can be found to be last. There is a warning to each one of us here today that by virtue of our attitudes and our actions, just like the workers who were hired first, we who were first can be found to be last. There is a danger while being in the kingdom if we operate with a mindset of merit and what we deserve, we will be acting in a manner contrary to the kingdom of heaven. Don't be those who are among the first, but become the last. That's point one. Lesson two is this. Priority of time means little to God. Verse 16. Priority of time means little to God. Building on the first one, the last will be first, the first will be last. There's a chronology. Some were hired first, some were hired last. Priority of time means little to God. Those who were in the field first gained no more than those who were in the field last. And there's a sense in which it seems to be suggesting the passage that because of their grumbling, because of the hardness of their heart, because of the merit-based deserving mentality they have, they are somehow last in the kingdom. Now, priority of time could be priority of anything else. 
I've met Christians, believe it or not, who boasted how far they drove to church to get to church each Sunday. They thought it was a feather in their cap that they drove such long distance that somehow they deserved something special as a result of it. I've met Christians who've boasted of family connections. Because I'm of this family, I should receive this special treatment. I'm sure you've met Christians as well who have boasted about how much they serve in the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, those people who boast of their own merits are always the most entitled in the kingdom of heaven and the ones who complain the most. Because complaining and being entitled go hand in hand. You think you're entitled to something, you don't get it, you complain. Our Lord is rebuking such self-promotion. That's what the workers did. We were here first. We worked through the heat of the day. You gave them a denarius. Give us more. We deserve more. Our Lord is not interested in their priority. Our Lord is not interested in their, their, their cries of deserving. Whether they were hired first, whether they've worked harder, whether they've worked through harder conditions, he's not interested. He says, I told you I'd give you a denarius. I gave you the denarius, and I'm at liberty to give them also what I want. Our Lord is rebuking a self-promoting and entitled mentality in the kingdom. Notice that. And we would do well to be reminded that this was the very sin of ancient Israel that sent them into exile and then ultimately saw the Gentiles brought in in place of them. That proud presumption that they were the first, the chosen, and the best. Well, God said, think again. It's calling each one of us here today to count ourselves the least in the kingdom to remove thoughts of priority there's none greater in this room than the other to remove priority of age of birth and family of contribution of years service it's calling us to remember the grace of god is the cause of our age our birth our contribution our years of service we may not be entitled on the basis of what we've done. And that leads us to our third lesson. Even our secular pay for which we work comes to us by the grace of God. That's the narrative, of the, uh, of, uh, the theme of the whole narrative, really. Even our secular pay for which we work comes to us by the grace of God. Now, we would all acknowledge... There is a close correspondence between the number of hours we work and the amount of money we receive in our paycheck at the end of the month. Hours worked, amount of pay, merit-based, broadly speaking. We, we note that at a, at a fairly basic level, but there's a more fundamental thing going on in the narrative than just a simple works-based, get-what-you-pay-for mentality. What if, in the providence of God, you as a Christian worker did not receive what was due to you? You had money every month withheld from your paycheck. How would that make you feel? You'd be aggrieved because of that correspondence between hours worked and pay received. But the agreement between you and your employer, that contract... 
And you would have right, humanly speaking, to pursue redress for the money that's not been paid to you. But what if in God's providence, let's put it that way, in God's providence you didn't receive what was owed to you? While there's injustice on the part of man in that scenario, there can never be injustice on the part of God. Why? Because even our salaries, the one denarius or whatever we're paid, even our salaries, when we get to the most foundational level, come to us through the grace of God and therefore are undeserved. Yes, we have a human contract which means something, surely, but ultimately beneath that there's the grace of God. He gives us that as an aspect of his loving care unto us. While there may be injustice on the part of man, there is none on the part of God. In the grand scheme of things, even when we merit things on an earthly level, we still have to come to terms that we receive those blessings by the grace of God. That was the problem with the rich young ruler. He thought his blessings, his great possessions, were the result of his own law-keeping rather than the grace of God. But friends, God owes you nothing through your merit. He owes me nothing through my merit. He only owes us through his gracious promise to us. That tells us it's grace. He gives generously generously to his children, not because we merit it from him, but because of his grace. That leads us to our fourth lesson. Don't miscalculate what is lawfully owed to you. Verse 11 and 12. Uh, The workers come receiving, they grumble at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. The workers come to the master, they come to God, because God is the master of the kingdom, Christ is the king. They come with a merit and position-based argument. Note that, merit and position. These last worked only one hour. We've worked the whole day. That's their merit. This is what we've done. The position is seen in this, but you have made them equal to us. They object to what the master has done in terms of merit and position. They think they deserve better and they want better. So they grumble and they malign the master. The master here who is surely King Jesus, King of the kingdom, You see, friends, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, when we think we're receiving by by law, by merit, not by grace, then we will be very ready to come to God or to our brethren with great expectations of what we think we deserve. That's contrary to grace. It's very easy in those moments when we feel we've been defrauded or some injustice has been perpetrated against us. It's very easy to shake our fist at God. And we'd all say here, well, I'm not going to shake my fist at God. We do it all the time. Every time we grumble about a circumstance, when we say, I don't deserve this. 
We shake our fist at God. We do it when we don't get what we think we deserve. That's merit. We want our just desserts, don't we? Give me what is owed to me. Friends, if you want your just desserts, the only just desserts that are warrant to you is the pains of hell forever. That's the reality. Those are the only just desserts that we can claim. If, if you want to stand before God on your rights and judge your merits before God, know this, we deserve one thing, death and hell. The wages of sin is death. That's right. Take care then that you don't miscalculate what is lawfully owed to you. And that leads us nicely into our fifth point from the parable, the justice of God. We've mentioned this already, the justice of God. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. The justice of God. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this passage, says, God always acts with complete integrity, even when he does what we do not want. God always acts with complete integrity, even when he does what we do not want. He says to the workers, friend, I am doing you no wrong. I am not unjust. He's not defrauded his workers. He agreed with them a denarius per day, and he paid them a denarius a day. Think on this in our context, friends. How could we fault God for giving us what he's promised when out of generosity he gives the same to others also? It's the problem looking sideways, isn't it? This was part of Jonah's problem that Pastor Rizal helpfully pointed out a few weeks back. Knowing God to be merciful, Jonah attempted to reject God's call to preach the gospel to Nineveh because he knew that God would share that mercy to others who he didn't think were as deserving as him. We can fall into that same kind of thinking. The master is not unjust, either to the earlier workers or to the later workers. He was free to give them from his own wealth what he chose. Think on this, friends. Which one of us would dare appear before God and impeach him for being unjust? Because he does not give us what we want. Or because he does not give us what we think we deserve the temptation to this is real it's real and if you don't know this temptation in your life then you're scarcely alive i suspect it's just real for all of us we think we deserve better in in many and various circumstances in life how can we demand that we have more or something else in life as if we deserved it I don't deserve this is a powerful and emotional argument and temptation in our lives. 
I deserve better. It's a very, very self-serving thought, is it not? Humanly speaking, it may be true. Your employer may have defrauded you. You might be someone who receives an injustice from someone else. But we dare not charge God with that injustice. Rather, we take from his hand both the good and the bad. As Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do not charge God with injustice. Even if you don't say, God, you're unjust. We can do it in our hearts by our thoughts and our attitudes. God is not unjust. It's simply illogical. It's against our faith. It's against the glory of God and our own interests to charge God with this kind of injustice. Remember, everything we have comes from his grace. Therefore, we're not do anything. No, the justice of God is very clearly shown forth in this narrative. And lastly, lesson six. Along with the justice of God, we see also the great generosity of God, the great generosity of God. And we see that down there in verse 14 to the end. Uh, the Lord, the master says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? Do you begrudge me my generosity, says God to us this day? While there's usually a close correspondence between hours worked and pay received, sometimes there isn't, even spiritually speaking. Think of this. Uh, The great prophets of the old covenant who did labor, as it were, through the heat of the day, who were persecuted for the sake of Christ and, and the cross, consider what they went through and their reward and the thief on the cross. A last moment conversion and he receives the words, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have to labor through the heat of the day, did he? But he received the greatest gift of eternal life. Here God reveals his mercy, his kindness, his generosity, the goodness of God on show. Giving to the last worker, hired at the 11th hour, he works one hour and still receives the blessing of a day's wage. Calvin speaks here of these people having an undeserved reward. It's the nature of grace, isn't it? Undeserved reward. That for them, there was not a correspondence between hours work and blessing received. Why? God can do this because he's gracious. God can do this because he's kind. God can do this because he's generous. And God can do this because he is sovereign. Can, am I not able to do or allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's the greatest statement of sovereignty we might ever read. God can do these things. He can bless the first as well as the last. Remember, we're talking about grace, getting what we don't deserve. As the old hymn says, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's the nature 
of our God. Friends, we must come to terms with this character of God at least for two reasons. First, it will help us not to fall into this bitter, uh, ugly entitlement mentality that we see so often in the world and sometimes in the church. One writer says of, of, of this, God is not answerable to man for what he does with his rewards. Think on that. God's not answerable to you for what he gives you. You always remain answerable to him. So we bow before him, don't we? We humble ourselves and bow before him. But secondly, we need to see this generous, gracious God. Because if our eyes are open to his character, then more and more, just as we go through each day of our lives, we will see the grace of God on display more frequently in our lives. The blinkers will be removed. We will see in glorious technicolor the grace and mercy and goodness of God. We'll see it everywhere. We'll see it in the weather. We'll see it in a car that runs. We'll see it in children, in husbands, in wives, in homes, in air conditioning, in food, in clothing. Everything that is around us, we'll see the goodness and grace of God. And when we have a mind to see God's goodness in that way, surely that's going to empower us to live thankful, holy lives. I mean, after all, if we're surrounded by the goodness of God, everything in this room, everyone in this room, comes to us by the goodness of God when we see the goodness of God so often and frequently in our lives surely that's going to humble us surely that's going to make worshippers of us surely that's going to make us thankful Christians who wouldn't dream of charging God with injustice yes thankfulness seeing the goodness of God what a great motivation it is for us to live holy and righteous lives before Almighty God. Lives, I should add, of great service. Great service, because so much has been done for us. Friends, as we bring this to a conclusion, all these lessons lead us to one place. Think on this, the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, the graciousness of God, the generous gift of God. Where does it lead us? It leads us to the Saviour. There is no greater display of these attributes of Almighty God and the character of Almighty God than in the giving of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. It's a big word there, love. And notice that. Uh, Jesus doesn't procure the love of God for us. The love of God sent Jesus. On the basis of this text and others, we could just as easily say God was so generous that he gave his only son. God was so gracious that he gave his only son. God was so just that he gave his only son. God was so sovereign that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gift that is Jesus Christ 
holy unwarranted, holy unmerited on our part. It's not just about our pay. It's not just about our salary. It's not just about the clothes we wear or the beams that hold this roof on this building so we can worship. It is about all those things, but principally it's not about those things. It's about the Son, Christ Jesus. Think we have two great needs when it comes to our Lord, two great needs in life. First, we have a great sin problem, don't we? A personal, individual, you have your sin problem, I have mine sin problem, and without God and Christ, that sin problem is insurmountable. We are drenched and blood-soaked in our own sin until we are blood-soaked with the blood of the Lamb, Christ Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? The biblical image of being washed in blood. I can't imagine anything more unpleasant, but it removes our sins. Every last one of them. Our great sin need is met in the gift of the Savior. But we also have a great need for righteousness to enter heaven and stand before God. And friends, this is also met in our Savior, wonderful Savior. His perfect righteousness imputed to us in justification. We receive it only through faith. Faith is the gift of God. No works, no merit on our part. We don't deserve anything, but we have everything. We have the Savior. And in him we have life eternal. Friends, here in this narrative is the grace of God, the generosity, the justice, the sovereignty of God preeminently provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there are any here today that do not have faith in this Savior, we would urge you, we would plead with you, and God commands you, come to Christ for repentance, come to Christ for faith, come to Christ for forgiveness. This day believe and you shall be saved. This is glorious and beautiful and wonderful and lovely. Receive this Savior this very day. And for those of you who have, been, have put their trust in the Savior a long time ago, having believed upon him, resolve now to live in the manner and with the mindset and heart that this passage teaches us. Do not just live, as it were, with the status of a believer, Live also with the mind of the believer. The mind of the believer is bathed in the grace of God. We receive from God both good and ill. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, almighty God, for your word, which is life and light unto us. There is no God like you so good, gracious, who pardons iniquity, who grants blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Lord, bind us to you. Bind us to Christ by faith. And may we, Lord, more and more understand this heart and this mind where we count ourselves nothing that we might give all praise and honor and glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.